Well, tonight we return to the short book of Jude in this series called Contending for the Faith. We're looking at just one verse tonight, Jude chapter, or chapter, Jude verse 11. It's actually chapter 1, in case you need to know, because there's only one chapter. In Jude chapter, see here I go, chapter again. In Jude verse 11, we're reminded in the context, Paul, (laughs) I'm just tongue-tied tonight, aren't I? Not Paul, but Jude, who wrote this letter, that Jude, in his desire to protect the church and guide them into truth, has warned them that there will be false teachers coming in, creeping in even unnoticed. He gave several examples in the Old Testament or in uh, the history of the world regarding those who would rebel against God. And in verse 11, he does much the same thing. We'll find tonight three different examples. And so if you would follow along, these three types, or as some people will say, theologically anti-types of false teachers that will uh, provide for us warning and realization that in discernment we might find these in our churches. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. As we consider these three historical examples, let's first ask the Lord to guide our time together. Lord, whether Balaam, Cain, or Korah, we pray that we would be warned, we would be effectively uh, discerning, and that we would be able to judge between what is right and what is wrong, between what is true and what is false. Lord, I pray that the words spoken here and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, consistent with your word, or else, Lord, fall away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach this particular section, I want to remind you of a story you probably learned as a child, or if you didn't, maybe this is new to you. It's the story of the Pied Piper. You know what it was. The Pied Piper was hired to go into the town because they had a particular vermin problem, and he was to take care of that vermin for this town. And so they hired him. They thought that his piping would lead all these unwanted animals out of the town. And, of course, he performed his work, and like any good exterminator, he did his job, and all of the vermin left the town. But the town leaders, after they saw what had happened, refused to pay him. So, of course, what happened was this individual with his pied piping skills, according to the tall tale or the legend, began to play his pipe, and pretty soon all of the children in the town followed him out of the town, and the people were dismayed. Now, it's a silly story. But what about this Pied Piper? He looked good. He evidently had charisma. He appeared to be the answer to a grave problem, and in fact seemed to solve that problem in miraculous ways. But in the end, he loved money. And he was willing to lead the most vulnerable of that town away from the safety of their homes in order to get his pay. Now, of course, you can fault the leaders of the town for failing to pay the bill. But what reputable person would take and kidnap all the children of the town because he did not get his money? 
This is what false teachers are like. They will take the most vulnerable away from the safety of God's people and the flock. And because of their love of worldly things, they will in the end not be about the kingdom of God and service, even if they aren't treated well, but they will be all about themselves. You see, Jude is telling us that all false teachers, even these types, whether it's that the false teachers of his day maybe fit these categories or maybe fit more than one of these categories or even all these categories, all these false teachers are rushing into perdition, even though they are different types with different motives. Again, Jude, for some reason, likes to say things in threes, so he gives us, once again, three different types of false teachers. First of all, he talks about proceeding down those teachers that would proceed down the road of Cain. Secondly, he talks about those who would rush into the reward of Balaam's seduction. And finally, (coughs) the third example are those who are perishing, as in the rebellion of of Korah. Now, first of all, you might wonder why these extreme examples, or rather uh, unknown to many people, they're, they're not the most known people in Scripture, but he begins with this example, proceeding down the road of Cain. Now, if you know the story of Cain, is found early in the Bible. In fact, Cain is the son, or one of the sons, of the first couple that God created, Adam and Eve. After Genesis 1 and 2 in creation and after the fall in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God and were removed from the garden, it tells us that they had two children, Abel and Cain, and then many others as well. But these two brothers are mentioned in Genesis chapter 4. And if you would like to turn with me to that scripture passage, I'm going to read a portion of it for you. Genesis chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you will do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That is the road of Cain. Now we could talk about all kinds of theological uh, issues regarding that story. What was it about the two offerings that were so different? What was it that God did in judging Cain? We could go through all those details, but the passage we're looking at tonight in Jude 11 reminds us that false teachers are like Cain's road of murder and destruction. So what do we know about it? First of all, We know that he was ruled by envy. Notice what took place. It says here that Cain was very angry when he realized that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but not him. 
Why was it that he would kill his brother? It appears to be that the main issue, besides the fact that we're going to find that there was a problem with his relationship with the Lord, was that he didn't like that Abel got good attention from God and he got bad attention from God. And in his envy, it rose to murder. I have to say, I have a brother. He's 13 years older than me. We didn't have much time growing up. In fact, I went to kindergarten when he went off to college. But there have been times in our life, a few times, when we have not gotten along with each other. In fact, my memory is not too good, but I remember when I was in junior high and my brother had come back to live with us for a few weeks or months, I can remember that one of us, and my memory is so bad I don't remember, it's probably me, one of us tried to push the other down the stairs. And you know we do that. Brothers and sisters don't get along with each other sometimes. Sometimes it's because we're envious of the attention that the other is getting. Sometimes it's because we've been caught and we don't like the fact that somebody else did the right thing and we did the bad thing. We get envious. Jesus tells us that those who look at their brother and in their heart call him a fool are guilty of murder. Jude tells us that this envy and murder is the road of many false teachers. But what's behind this murder? When Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we read this about Cain. It says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What was Cain's problem? What was his road that led to envy and murder? It appears to have been the heart of the issue, according to the author of Hebrews, a lack of faith. Now we can talk about why the gift was not acceptable. I think it seems to be that in part, Abel's gift had to do with blood shed for his sin. It also seems to be that Abel offered the better offering because he offered the best, and it was, of course, by faith that he offered it. But the key to Cain is to understand there was a lack of faith. But Scripture does not stop there about Cain. If we turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John writes these words, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. In other words, there was not only a lack of faith, there was a lack of love for his brother. And there was a lack of understanding his own righteousness. He wasn't righteous. His brother, by faith, offered a righteous gift. Now, it wasn't righteous because Abel was a better person or earned his salvation or his relationship with God. It was righteous because of his faith, just like Abraham's faith would be counted as righteousness. And so his faith was demonstrated by a lack of faith, or his uh, murderous attitude was demonstrated by a lack of faith and a lack of love for his brother. So when Jude says, they walked in the way of Cain, 
It's telling us that there are false teachers creeping into the churches unnoticed. And we know it's not just in Jude's day. It continues to this day. Who lack faith, lack love, are envious and full of murder. And in the end, they're rebelling against God's judgment. This type of teacher, what does he love? Does he love the Lord? No. This type of teacher loves the world. This type of teacher loves the world and is basically an unconverted person. Think of this. Jude is warning the church against having false teachers coming in who are not truly believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to say, this is always a danger in the church. I think some of the subtle dangers are having people that perhaps have all the appearance of godliness, but do not believe in the Lord. This is a particular danger of a pastor's kid or a missionary kid. That's one that I was. I was a pastor's kid. I know lots of pastor's kids and missionary kids. And I know that sometimes, because of the way of the world and the way that we experience things, pastor's kids or missionary's kids can go off to seminary, go off to college and seminary and go through all the classes because they don't know anything else. It's what their life has been geared around. It's what they've been brought up to do on a regular basis. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes those pastor's kids or missionary kids can go through all the motions Because that's just what they've done all their life. It's ground into them. Week after week, you go to church. Week after week, you read your Bible. Week after week, you do the things that Christians do in their culture or society, wherever they have lived and whatever they've done. And because that's all that person knows to do, he perhaps doesn't know all the different ways that his gifts can be used in the world, and he just assumes that he is called to the office of his father. But the problem with this is, is he a believer? Has he been converted? The book of Malachi, the first two chapters, talk about the priests and the prophets and those who would institute all the sacrifices and all the things that were going on in the temple, and he says they are mere empty words and straw men. You see, the danger, the great danger of false teachers is not always that they're going to teach wrong things. It's not always that they're going to act in the wrong ways. Sometimes they can be a great moral person or someone who knows a lot of information. And maybe they have great gifts and charisma. But if they're not a believer, they're a false teacher that in the end is proceeding down the road of Cain due to their lack of faith and their lack of love for God's people. Be warned, there are false teachers that look everything the bit and part of a faithful leader who are not converted to the Lord Jesus Christ and have repented of their sins. That's the first type. The second type is this. The ESV says they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. My particular translation of my own words says they're rushing into the reward of Balaam's seduction. Now, what is the story of Balaam? He's one of those bizarre individuals in biblical history, isn't he? He is someone who is described as a prophet of God. 
And the king of Moab wants to go out and hire Balaam to curse the people of Israel because he's afraid of them. So he goes to Balaam and he hires him to curse the people. And Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so rather than curse the people three times, he blesses the people of God. And you think to yourself as you're reading that narrative, what a godly man. What a man who will do whatever God tells him, even when, a, when someone who is powerful and has lots of resources wants to hire him to do his own thing. And yet we're reminded in scripture that something else took place. Look with me, if you would, historically at Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. In chapters 22 through 24 was where he was, uh, Balaam was hired to curse Israel and did not do that. And then in chapter 25, beginning at verse 1, it says this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000 people. Now you wonder, here was this man Balaam who had been hired to curse Israel. Instead, he blessed Israel. And yet Israel, on its own initiative, it appears from this passage, goes out and commits idolatry and adultery uh, immorality before God to the point that God is ready to strike down 24,000 men. What is Balaam's role in this? Well, in chapter 31, verses 8 and 16, we read these words. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Recham, Zer, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. He's particularly mentioned out. And then down in verse 16, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. In other words, here was Balaam. He's hired to curse the people, and out of his great understanding that he can only proclaim what God tells him to, he instead blesses the people. But in order to get paid, he takes aside the king of Moab and the leaders of Moab, and he tells them, if you really want to get Israel, I can't curse them, but I advise you to entice them to participate in your idolatrous orgies. And they did. So what was Balaam's problem? Why is it that Jude is warning us against that particular individual that there are false teachers like Balaam in the church? First of all, because there are those with reckless greed. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 
Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. But here is what he did. He loved gain from wrongdoing. There was reckless greed involved. There are those that will come into the church that are not about serving the kingdom. They're about gaining wealth and gaining material possessions. There are those false teachers. Again, they may be great teachers. They may be those who have the appearance of godliness. They may have great charisma, great gifts, but their motivations are to gain for themselves. But not only is there reckless greed, but there's also reckless immorality. Perhaps you remember when John writes to the churches in Revelation, he says this to one church, Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. In other words, in order to gain material possessions and influence and power and all of those things, there are those false teachers who have no interest in faith. Their interest is in gain. And so it's a rebellion against God's people, taking advantage of them for their own purpose. Just as the teacher who follows the example of Cain has a love for the world, so the teacher who follows the example of Balaam has a love for money. And I have to say, in our day and age, there are those leaders who may have might have great gifts, great talents. They might get a mega church or a mega media responsibility. And yet when you see them and you see their lifestyle, you see great mansions, great wonderful cars and clothes and material possessions. And in our day and age, even jets that jet around the world. What does the scripture say about the desire for money? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There will be false teachers that are more interested in their bottom line than they are in anything else. And lest we think it's a megachurch, lest we think it's the one who has thousands of followers and a great TV presence or internet presence, lest we think it is those who have best-selling books Let us be reminded that in our small churches there are those who are more interested in their salary and their comforts than they are in the service of the gospel. Even when that service would result in even the people and the flock treating him badly. You see, the servant is willing to serve despite all the obstacles that the world would throw because he trusts in Christ to provide And when that happens, and when we have that desire and that love for money that Jude is warning the church about, those who seek the seduction or the reward of Balaam's seduction, it compromises the teaching and the practices of that teacher. So why then does he go from Cain and Balaam to this even more obscure figure in Scripture, Korah? I tend to think, like some of the commentators write, that he goes to Korah because it has the most bizarre and most powerful judgment of any of these individuals. 
Cain was given the judgment that he had to walk the earth with a mark upon him and that he was experiencing God's judgment as long as he lived. Balaam experienced an execution. That is, he was killed in justice by God's people as they were killing off some of the enemies of God. But Korah had something more amazing happen. You've heard the story. You heard Bruce read it tonight. Korah was one who decided that he was going to rebel against the authority of Moses and Aaron, and so he took 250 men who were following him. This is what false teachers do, isn't it? They gain a following. They gain a great number of people who will support them. In this case, there was insurrection. They decided to come against Moses and say, why are you leading us? We think anybody should lead. They were very egalitarian in their views. And here it was. They decided to do this, and God said, okay, Let's see what will happen. Let them bring their censers, their fire. Let Moses and Aaron bring their censers. Come before my presence and God let his glory come down in front of the people of Israel. What a scene that must have been. This time he spoke not just to Moses or to Aaron, but he spoke to the whole people of Israel in their presence. They heard these things. At first God said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from all the people. I've had enough. But in their intervention, Moses and Aaron prayed to God, and God said, Fine, all of you congregation get away from these 250 followers, and particularly from Korah and the leaders of that group. And what took place was something that has not been seen like this. The earth swallowed alive all of these individuals, their tents, their possessions, everything that they had, and these people alive down to Sheol. What a terrible, terrible judgment. Why? What was the basic problem of Korah? Well, we know this. He first had a disregard for human authority. It seems so simple when we make that membership vow, that when we make the membership vow to say that we vow to submit to the authority of God's church, You know, it seems so simple. It seems like it's just something we kind of do as a rote or a ritual thing. But if we rebel against God's placed human authority, there can be grave consequences. And of course, even the pastor or false teacher that comes in, that individual is under the authority of others. He has made a vow, at least in our tradition, every pastor makes a vow to submit to his brothers, his brothers in presbytery. All the elders of our church and deacons make a vow to submit to the brothers in their assembly. And so we're reminded that there is a vow of submission. By faith, we are told that every authority placed in our lives, even the evil ones, are placed there by God. And we are required to respect them. And insofar as it pleases God, we are to submit to their authority. But Korah had a disregard for human authority. Not only that, but by correlation, he had a disregard for divine authority. Who was it that placed Moses and Aaron in charge of the people? Moses didn't want to go. When he was at the burning bush, what did he do? He gave all kinds of excuses why he wasn't the right guy. He said, I don't talk well. I'm I'm not the person. In the end, he said... I just don't want to go. And God got angry with him and said, Behold, isn't your brother Aaron coming? He will be your voice. He will help you. And so Moses went. 
God called Moses and Aaron. If we understand what God does in the church today and in Jude's day, we understand that everyone who is called to teach and to lead God's people at least should be called by God. In fact, how important is it when we make a vote for an elder or a deacon or a pastor's call Sometimes we just say, okay, this is a, the name on here. I'm supposed to say yes to everything, and we don't consider who those leaders are. Are they really called to serve in office? Does their life reflect a believer who will teach the truth of God and lead in a godly example? Those things are so very important to the church. But once they are placed in office, we understand that they are placed there by God's calling. So again, what is this teacher? What is he doing in rejecting God's authority? In in fact, there is an opposition here once again to faith. Jude here describes in all of these circumstances, notice a lack of faith in Cain, no interest in faith in Balaam, and opposition to faith in Korah. And it's a rebellion, just as the first one is a rebellion against God's judgment, the second one is a rebellion against God's people, so here is a rebellion against God's authority. And isn't this the heart of our sinful nature? This is what Adam and Eve did. They believed Satan's word over God's word. They rejected God's authority. This is what the church has done in history so often is placing leaders or others in power that should not be there or failing to follow through with the things of the word of God. They reject God's word and when they do this, they reject God's authority. This type of teacher loves power. They're more interested in being their own authority. Self-rule. There are common problems in the church. One commentary writes about this, particularly in the church today where there are two types of leaders in particular that are in danger of looking for self-rule rather than God's rule. One of those is young leaders who attack older ones with impatience. We look at the world today, and I have to say it's a wonder to me that we have all of these aging leaders in the halls of our White House and the halls of our Congress and the halls of our courts and others, and it seems like they're getting more and more gray-haired and more and more are coming in in wheelchairs and canes and everything else. And young leaders sometimes look at that and they say, we just can't wait for them to get out of office. And they begin to rebel against them. But on the other hand, this commentary writer writes this, Sometimes there are older leaders who are unwilling to give up their power. In other words, they're more interested in maintaining their power at all cost. And these false teachers, whether young or old, it's not about God's authority. It's not about God's calling. It's not about God leading his people in the design that he has. It's about their kingdom and their authority and their power. And there's a danger for all of us. All of us, especially those of us in leadership positions, to think that it's all about us and our abilities and our uh, ideas and all of those things. And if we do that and we rebel against God's authority, we're following in the rebellion of Korah. 
John Benton, the commentary writer who wrote those words, says not everyone should have access to office. So what about these false teachers? Remember, it said terrible things. But the two things that seem to be all through this particular passage, all through verses 3 through 11 to this point, is false teachers follow two particular paths. One is they rebel against authority. And secondly, they're often involved in immorality. False teachers may have great gifts. They may even seem to have great power. It may even seem as if they can buy their own power and influence and the gift of their speaking and influence and persuasion bring people to the feet of the cross, to the foot of the cross. They might have great charisma and be able to lead people in very effective ways. But in the end, if they're unbelievers, in the end, if their love is the things of the world, particularly money and material possessions, in the end, if they're more concerned about their own power than the power of the kingdom, they will be exposed by the path they take, and their motivations will guide their teaching in relation to faith. Church of God, watch out. It says, woe to them, but woe to us if we don't discern between false and true teachers in the church for the sake of Christ and his sheep. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, help us not to follow the doomed. Be it Cain who had to walk the earth in judgment. Be it Balaam who was killed for his part in seducing the people of Israel. Or be it Korah who was swallowed up by the earth in an amazing display of your justice. Father, give us wisdom and discernment. Give us understanding. And those of us who are leaders, help us not to fall prey to these temptations, to money, to power, to the things of the world. Help us, Lord, to always put your kingdom first and to seek your righteousness. 